Hello and welcome once again to the Film Score Junkie podcast with me, Charlie Nelson. And in this episode, I have with me singer and actress Kim Criswell. For more than 40 years, Kim has worked on the West End and Broadway. And for those who are familiar with the John Wilson Orchestra, you may know her as one of the many soloists who has performed with them. So to start with, Kim, um, could you tell me about your early life and how, and how that might have influenced your work? Hi, Charlie. Uh, well, early life. Um, I grew up in the South. I was born in Virginia, but most of my childhood was spent in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents are both very musical, but neither of them were professional musicians. Um, they could tell at a really early age that I was going to be a singer. They just... You know, they figured it out. At five years old, they had me standing on a chair in church and singing Ave Maria, <laughs> for instance, in Latin, in a Methodist church. That's weird in Tennessee, trust me. No, that actually was in Virginia. But um, my mother was, you know, she, she was a little bit Mama Rose. I mean, she encouraged, made little costumes, put me in little talent shows. You know, she did all of that stuff. And my dad was very much of that mind too. They really, they really wanted to, to, for me to use this talent, and so they helped me develop it. I didn't really start taking lessons until I was in my mid-teens, because honestly, before that, your voice isn't mature enough. You really shouldn't. So um, I just was in the school. I was in the chorus. I was in the school plays. I almost always had the lead except for one traumatic year where I, we did Finian's Rainbow and I did not get the lead and I'm still suffering trauma from that moment because uh, I had to play a Passion Pilgrim Gospelier instead. It, now, now Passion Pilgrim Gospeliers are meant to be middle-aged black men so you can imagine how much of a, how much of a departure it was. <laughs> they, they, were, they were like a vocal quartet. <laughs> of course, as usual, in junior high in Hickson, we didn't have enough guys in chorus, so, uh. so oh, some strange things have gone on in, mu- in my musical theater history. But um, basically, I, I met, when I got to college, I mean, or high school age, I met a woman called Maria Ransom, who was, ran the, the choral program, and she had been waiting for me and watching for me. She had been waiting, just, she went, let me get my hands on her. And we, we did all manner of things where she really developed my talent. She gave me private lessons, but she also, you know, she put on a mall in the night visitors. Who does that in high school? So I could be the mother. We did, we did Handel's Messiah. I was the soprano and the mezzo, <laughs> which was kind of hard to do in the duet. <laughs> but because, um, you know, we, and we did The Music Man, we did Brigadoon, we did The Sound of Music. I was the lead in all of those. Um, we did the Sanson Christmas Oratorio. Who does that in Hickson, Tennessee? You know, we did some really sophisticated stuff for a high school. And um, she really got me on the path. Now, in the meantime, my parents were also being very supportive. They befriended Maria Ransom. And uh, they, they were best of friends until, until everybody died. But um, my father bought a tape recorder way back in the day. It was the very first Sony tape recorder, tape deck that was called Sound on Sound Technology, meaning it had two tracks. So it's a reel-to-reel tape recorder where you could record at home. It was the first one where you could buy it for, you know, for non-commercial use. It's the first one for private use. And he bought it, and he would put these Living Strings songs on there, and then he would use the other track 
for me to sing a vocal over them. Oh. So there's a lot of that from when I was 10 or 11 or 12 years old. And honestly, at the time, I sort of, you know, I was a kid. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't love doing it. I mean, I, I, bec mainly, I didn't love hearing the result because if I sang an off-pitch note, it was there. It was put on an eight-track to play in the car. And it was played thousands of times. So if I sang an off-pitch note, I had to hear it a great many times. This is why I sing on pitch now. I'm convinced that that is why. I was tortured by singing off-pitch notes. So I, um, th that tape recording r routine put me, put me in a good place for the career that I ended up having. Then when I was 15, my parents insisted that I audition for the show at Six Flags Over Georgia, a theme park show. Now, those theme park shows, you know, they usually have a cast of about 16, somewhere between 12 and 16. Uh, they're usually college-age kids. They're, you know, they're little reviews. It's, uh, it's like, you know, you'd see at Opryland or Disney World or at Six Flags Over Georgia, any of their parks. And you sing and you dance and you do multiple shows a day. They're little half-hour, 40-minute shows. Um, anyway, I auditioned. I was only 15. But they were doing a show of younger kids that year, and so I got in it. And that was the beginning. When I was 15, was the beginning of my professional career at Six Flags Over Georgia, <laughs> singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Ah. So, um, so I've been singing that song a long time. A anyway, I got to senior year. Um, when it came to choosing a college, I was very, very clear that I wanted to go to Cincinnati Conservatory. I mean, I, we, we looked into a lot of schools, but I wanted to study musical theater had no interest in being a classical singer. And uh, so I, my, my mother took me to audition at, at CCM and I got in. There were about, I think about 10 of us accepted that year and it was about four or 500 that auditioned. So it's a tough school to get into. At that point, it was certainly the leading school for getting a musical theater degree because it was, it was, I think, the very first one to offer it. So. They, they kind of were in a good place to know what they were doing. They were experienced at training people for this career. So that, you know, and then CCM took it from there, and then I went to New York. So the rest is history. I'm actually having lessons as well. And Singing lessons? Yes. Yes. And? As a professional opera singer, and obviously I've gone through similar trauma or similar issues when when you sing a wrong note mm -hmm. and my god i recently did my audition for salford university and um i sang two songs for that uh, one of which was i like myself mm -hmm. from it's always fair weather i actually prepared a backing track I, I took the actual recording with Gene Kelly. I put it into Audacity and took the vocals off it. Ooh, you know how to do that. That's yeah. a handy skill to have. But anyway, I, um, God, now, there were some occasions when it was an absolute nightmare learning that song. Um, there was, because you, you, you start off whistling mm -hmm. and then you have to change and make a hell of a jump from one note to a very high note and my god it was so bloody difficult to get a steady note <laughs> but thankfully it, it didn't go too bad when I did the audition. Well, but Mr. Kelly made it sound so easy didn't he? 
Yeah. <laughs> With his big toothy smile, which I am not sure if I have. You've got teeth. You, you can smile. I can see you smiling. <laughs> but that's beside the point. You can manage that. Um, anyway, um, moving on. Um, do you have a favourite style or piece of music that you like to sing? And if so, why? Whenever I'm asked what is my favourite of anything, there is no, there is no consistent, consistent, it's my lifetime favourite, because that I feel like is for people who are standing in one place. It tends to be whatever I'm doing or whatever I just did. Um, there are, you know, there are some of recordings that I've done, because I've done so many. I mean, certainly there are, I have favourite moments from those that I think are better than the others. But um, by and large, it's because it's, you know, recording, doing anything like that. It's like being on a tightrope. And sometimes you almost fall off a couple places. <laughs> sometimes you just sail across it and, and never wobble. Um, singing a song is a bit like that. And so you can, you can tell. People that are listening to it can't necessarily tell where you're on the verge of a wobble. But, uh, but you can. You can. And you always remember. I can remember recordings from... 1990 and exactly how I felt and how many takes we did and the bizarre things like that that you think I wouldn't remember that there's all kinds of stuff I don't remember but I remember those details I have such a sense memory of, of those singing things so I don't really have a favorite I don't even have a favorite style I like to belt but I also like to sing the soprano end of the range which I've I had to fight yeah. for that um, you, you are of course you are a legit soprano um, who belts? Who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a legit soprano I'll, who belts. I'll, in that case, I'll, and at I CCM, you. I mean, honestly, at Cincinnati, they didn't know what to make of me. On, the reason that I learned to belt is because I grew up absolutely inhaling Julie Andrews. I mean, you know, you know, when I was a child, it was you know, it was it was Mary Poppins and it was Sound of Music and all of that. And I just wore out those recordings, listening to them over and over. And so I sang with a, a British accent until I was in my mid-teens or somewhere in there. I can still do Julie. You know, I can still do a Julie because that was the first accent I sang in. And then I realized when I was, you know, right about the time I was working at Six Flags that, you know, because I was a little soprano in the show. But um, I realized that I look in the mirror and I wasn't seeing Julie looking back. I was seeing, you know, some body brain kind of, kind of broad. I was seeing more of a merman. So I, and some of the other girls in the shows had body belty numbers. And I thought, well, let me see if I, that sounds more like I look. Let me see if I can make that sound. And I, as it turns out, I could. And probably the reason I can belt higher is because I still sing soprano. Hmm. I've got much space on top of it. So I can, uh, anyway, I've, I've worked through it all. Uh, Range-wise, so and and honestly, at CCM, my teachers—I uh, mean, I certainly had some resistance. Not all of my teachers, but kind of going, mm, no, you can't be both. You have to be one or the other. Like, mm. no, watch me. It's like, no, I'm not going to choose. Watch me. I'm going to sing both. I'm going to and I'm going to sing. I'm going to iron out that break in between too. Mm. And and I did. I and I I was a bit unusual in that way. Yeah, you sang like Julie Andrews. And you, I think you, you still occasionally do Julie Andrews songs? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when we did, when I was in 10th grade, so what was that, 15, I was 15, we did The Sound of Music, and I was, I was of course, Maria von Trapp. And I swear to God, every song, I didn't know I was doing it. 
Um, every song was raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. I didn't know I was doing that. <laughs> and then I would say the lines and I'd be like, oh, hey, Brigida, <laughs> come on over here and settle down. <laughs> it was so, the, so schizophrenic. The, the, <laughs> Yeah, because just listening to that now, you've got the the bends between the yeah, notes. Yeah, no, she imprinted the, on me. I really can, I can sing almost any song yeah, in Julie voice thing, now because it's so embedded in me from thing, childhood. Yeah, yeah, a similar thing happened with um, Dean Martin and and uh, who else? Gene Wilder, and I kind of. I didn't know it until recently. Well, I probably did, but I kind of came back to it. When I was, whenever I, almost every, okay, not every time, but most of the time when I sang, there was a kind of, I think there was a kind of articulation in my voice. There's, there is a recording of me. Um, I have the CD of it. I'm not sure if you can get the CD of it, but when I was in the... When I was in my when I started my second school, I was in I was in like year seven or eight. We did a recordings in chapel, singing a hymn called "If I Were a Butterfly." Okay. And I remember I remember recording it, and I I sang it with the kind of articulation that you would expect from someone like Dean Martin or Sinatra. Mm -hmm. So you've been very influenced by listening to those. Those jazzy it, it 50s was, singers. It, I don't know, it was uh, some kind of, it was the temptation or something to sing like that. Mm -hmm. And you, uh, and you, you talked about being a soprano just a little bit earlier. Um, I haven't got this written down, but you, um, as, well as, as well as appearing on stage and doing numerous recordings, you have the occasional film and TV credit. Yeah, very occasional, but and there are a few. I, when I was looking you up, I went onto IMDb mm -hmm. and found a movie called Hysteria. Yes, <laughs> that's the most recent one. It's and pretty hysterical, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, what would Kim be? I haven't seen the film properly, but I found the, the bit that you were in. Now I see why they needed a soprano. <laughs> they needed they needed somebody who could sing that, but was funny. And they were having they they really were so relieved when I came in. They told me later they went, "Oh my God, this was the hardest role to cast in the entire thing because we had to have somebody who could be funny, but who could plausibly sing this way, and but, but was funny." And they had not. I mean, I, I certainly can think of people from the opera world who would have been good, but they obviously didn't see them, so so they didn't have them to choose from. But but, um, you know, the, I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And uh, I just thought the whole thing was hilarious. I just thought it was a scream, an absolute scream. And I loved doing it. It was just, and it was, it was at a time when it's that thing that happens in life where, you know, you wait for a bus for 10 years and then five come at once. I literally went off to shoot that in Luxembourg, which is where we were shooting it. And then I had to make them shoot it, my stuff, very quickly, all in, a, I think, about three days. Because then I had to come back and start rehearsals for the first John Wilson tour. 
Ah. And it was like, of course these things are on top of each other. Of course they are. That's the way life works. But, it, I mean, it did my head in. I literally came from the airport to the rehearsal with my bags. So, um, and, and there was only one rehearsal. I, as I recall, usually for those tours, we would have one, one day rehearsal. And then we're just off. And we're just off doing it because it's you know when you when we're putting those tours together there's always uh, there's always a day of rehearsal but it's all stuff that you've done it's all stuff that you've done with John before so it's it's just yeah let's brush it off let's let's put everybody through their paces for a day and then off we go and that actually brings me to John Wilson so how, how why did you, how how and why did how John why? Wilson choose you to well, sing with his orchestra? Honestly, um, somebody, I can't remember exactly who, you'll have to ask him. He's told me, but I've forgotten. Somebody recommended me to him and said, you should have a listen to this girl, you know, or woman. <laughs> I don't think he knew me when I was a girl. <laughs> I was past that stage of being a girl. Um, but so anyway, we got together and we just got on like a house of fire. And the very first gig that I was asked to do was a little bit of a trial kind of gig. It was supposed to be me, Gary, who he works with a lot. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, me and Gary, who you will hear on many of his recordings. And Denise Van Outen was supposed to be the third person. And she bailed out of it at the last minute. So I ended up doing all of her stuff and all of my stuff. And the gig was at Buckingham Palace. Ah. So it was for the Princess Trust. It was for one of you know for Prince Charles's big charity, and it was a private concert for his his donors. So that's a heck of a way to start, isn't it? <laughs> it was kind of fun to get into a taxi and and say, okay, take me to Buckingham Palace. No, we're going inside. <laughs> They're like, what? Who are you? Unless <laughs> 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 I've got my dress bag and my this. And what was really funny too is I had this great big ball gown, and I had hemmed it up. I'd hemmed it up to do something just before this, and uh, or it had been it had been hemmed up. My mother hemmed it up. It took forever because it was like miles and miles of skirt, big full skirted thing, and I decided to, no, it was I can't remember if I was hemming it up or down, but something had to happen. Hemming it down is unhemming un is easy. Anyway, I ran out of time to get it hemmed up properly as I wanted to. And they said, "Oh, no worries. We'll just have the queen's seamstresses do that." So that's who hemmed my gown. <laughs> Only in show business do you have stories like that to tell. The so Queen's seamstresses. Sounds like something right out of a movie. Yeah, there you go. Um, we had a blast. That was really fun. And then, well, after that, because that was the first gig you did with John. Yeah. Um, that you then, of course, this was the this was the gig that. Uh, shook the world, I guess. That that was that. It was, of course, the MGM yes. prom in two thousand nine. Yes. It's funny because I, I re vaguely remember seeing that when it was on telly, mm -hmm. and when I heard that it was going to, for some reason, it was. Um, I'm not sure if if I turned the telly on or if it was my dad that turned the telly on, but um, it, I saw it starting. I don't think I heard any of the music though. I just saw Clive Anderson speaking. This is a, this is a, this is music from MGM uh, musical films. Mm -hmm. And when I and when I came into the room, and heard him say MGM, I thought, oh great, they're going to be doing Tom and Jerry and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and further back, further back. And Dad said, oh, no, 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 no. I think he means, like, you know, Wizard of Oz and whatnot. And I went, oh. Well, there's a ton of MGM music that John's done. I mean, he can't do them all in concert. So this was the first one. And I'm not sure if I caught a glimpse of any of that. I have I've since watched it on DVD and all that, but... And then I think as the years went by, I just kept, whenever the proms were on, I kept seeing um, bits on telly and whatnot. I think I saw, I saw bits of the Hollywood one, the Kiss Me Kate one. I saw the bits of the Oklahoma one. And I kind of heard of the John Wilson Orchestra. And I think there were some people, I'm not sure if there were people at my school who were talking about it, but... Um, and... Uh, I then, I was in Bristol um, in January 2017 at the Slapstick Festival and I picked up a flyer at what used to be the Colston Hall. I picked up a flyer there for the John Wilson Orchestra and it said something like, hear these musical numbers from the movies in their original film orchestrations and that was what got me excited mm-hmm. and um, we didn't that was when we were doing a tour but and then a, a couple of years later in 2019 I caught one of the last performances of them at the proms and that was the Warner Brothers prom. And my God, I absolutely enjoyed it. And there were songs that I'd never heard before, like 76 Trombones and um, some songs from like, I don't know, there was a, a number from the Desert Song. Mm-hmm. I could have danced all night from My Fair Lady and some others. Yeah, and uh, that's how I really got into, into what John Wilson did. Mm-hmm. And um, I happened to bump into my friend Neil Brand, who was presenting the program that night, and he told me about. I think he told, gave me some information about John Wilson, and and he said, "Well, I thought you, I thought you were going to be here because I know you like this sort of stuff." And um, yeah, and that's how I got to know about John Wilson. And then I um, and. I mean, thank God I caught that last performance of them because I then heard that they're not doing any more performances. And I thought, surely, because my mum and dad and everyone around me said they liked, they liked me singing. And I thought, yeah, if I keep going, I'll, I'll be able to sing with the John Wilson Orchestra. And then I saw <laughs> that John was disbanding it. I thought, what? Do you know what? The, the John Wilson Orchestra was uh was an orchestra that john had control of it was all set up and it had a it had a phase in his life but then he got to a point where he didn't you know he he thought okay time to time for a new chapter and so he stopped with that orchestra that doesn't mean he's not going to yeah he's not going to do use the same orchestrations and do and do concerts of film material and it, there may even be some players in common, but it, mm. it, essentially his new orchestra is is focusing on different stuff at the moment. Yeah, and that the, doesn't mean that they won't do any film material because they will. Mm. They will. He's still doing film stuff. He's still. He's. You know, it's not the end of the road. Yeah, but the John Wilson Orchestra, of course, has that particular sound. Um, well, I know, but the, you know, it, it went on for what ten years? Yeah. And okay. Obviously, he wants Everybody's to do. Everybody's sound changes in ten years. 
That is a fact of life. So I think part of what he's doing is making sure that he keeps things fresh. Mm. Um, everybody's sound changes. Yeah. And now, as well as doing Julie Andrews, you, of course, do a really good uh, impression of Judy Garland. I, yeah, she's, I, she's a bit, well, of course, I grew up listening to her, too, but you would think... You would think that you know she was who I really listened to. No, I was listening to the soprano. I was I was absolutely listening to Julie. Um, even Barbara Streisand was uh, very very far behind Julie Andrews for me in terms of me listening to them over and over and picking up the inflections. Because to to actually do an imitation of somebody, you have to hear you have to hear every level of the inflections and the pitch and you know all the things that they do, and see if you can make your larynx do that. Um, the reason, I mean, I, I actually, when I have students, I, I ask them to listen to specific people because once you listen to four or five different singers and are influenced by all of them, when you combine it, you're unique. You, you're not going to, unless you're deliberately trying to do an imitation. But for instance, if you're singing as Judy Garland, um, doing things like The Man That Got Away and, and, and her songs and Trolley's song, in, you know, the thing that I do to try to be absolutely faithful is I try to sing with the same placement of, you know, larynx and tone and all that, um, you know, speaking in a voice teachery sort of way. Um, I try to copy the placement. I absolutely copy the phrasing and the diction because that is how you identify a lot of singers. You don't realize how much that, that tells you who you're listening to. And the people that you can't identify by those things tend to not be big stars. They might be fabulous singers, but if they sound a lot like other people, they don't tend to break through in that way that a Judy Garland does. Judy Garland, for instance, sang with such a dangerous, wide-open throat. You know, uh, you know, you're on the verge of cracking all the time when you let yourself be that free with it because it's dangerous. It's a dangerous way to sing. Barbara Streisand is much more manicured in her placement and how she, how she shapes a phrase and all of that. Um, it's just very, very different because she's safer. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't go for, for the danger notes that Judy does. Mm. Um, she goes for plenty of notes that are not easy, but, but uh, you know, it's just a very different approach to using the voice. And to imitate it or to, to, to pay tribute to the women, I do try to copy all of that stuff. At the end of the day, it still sounds like me, but it's me sounding like them-ish. Yeah, um, it's funny because I was playing um, the DVD of the MGM prom, mm -hmm. uh, it was when you were singing "Get Happy," yeah, and I had it, I had it playing on my computer, and my mum went past the room, and she said, "Is that Judy Garland you're listening to?" Mm -hmm. And uh, and um, I said, uh, "I said no, it's not. It's uh, it's Kim Criswell," and she went, "Oh, I thought it was Judy." Well, that's good. I mean, I think she probably was identifying the song and the arrangement more than the voice, but still, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sing a Judy song in that context and sing it as, you know, without paying tribute to the way she sang it. Because if you're going to sing it in her arrangement, in her key, every, I have to sing things in the original keys. I won't change keys. 
um, you know, if, if, if it's for this kind of a thing, it's because there's a historical element mm. to these sorts of concerts yeah. that, that makes it belong on a concert stage I rather be, than mm. in, a, in a nightclub somewhere. Yeah, I can be fussy about keys. Are, are you fussy about what key Absolutely. pieces are in? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, when I was doing uh, another song I was doing uh, for my um, audition, was Pure Imagination mm -hmm. from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. um, God, what happened? Uh, there was, there were, I had a, I, I first tried to make a backing track from the original recording by taking Gene Wilder's vocals off, but it wasn't very successful. You could actually hear him quietly singing in the background. And we tried different backing tracks and I just, Eventually, I, I eventually I settled on a, pia a piano backing track, which thankfully was in the right key. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when it comes to being fussy with fussy with key with what key things are in, this was this was years ago when I was taking part in when I was taking part in the annual house singing competition at my school. One year we did a Beatles themed competition, and the song that my house sung, we, we sing two songs plus a hymn. Uh, we sing a unison song where the whole house, something the whole house stands up and sing, stands up and sings. Then we get a part song, which is usually done by a small a cappella group. And then of course we all get back together and do the hymn. Yeah. The unison song was Penny Lane. Mm -hmm. And I was used to, since I was little, I was used to hearing the original version of Penny Lane, which is in, which is in the key like, in Penny Lane there is a barber showing photographs, mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But when, when we did it, in rehearsals, when the teacher uh, played, played it on the piano, the key it was in was... <clears throat> In Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs. And at first I, th I went, stop, stop. This is the wrong key. And I just... I yeah, was just, it drove you crazy. I, it, I was just absolutely... Well, do you have perfect pitch? <sighs> Probably. Well, you I'd, should find out because that's an asset, but it can drive you crazy when something's not when something's not in the well, key you're expecting it to be. When I well, although as time went by, when we kept rehearsing it, I I grow I I, I got I grew accustomed to that arrangement to that version, and um, I actually like that version more than the original now, to be perfectly honest, because. Um, I don't know why um, the original sounds sweet, but the I think the version I did, if this is the right way of describing it, sounds a bit corny in a good way. Well, it's a little tiny bit of a piss take of a certain kind of cheerful little song, right? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, if you ask Paul McCartney about that, he'll go... I'm guessing, I don't know Paul McCartney, but I'm guessing he'll be like, I'm not that fussed about it. It's, it was in the queue, it sounded good on me. That's all he cares about, <laughs> you know? And that's all that most singers care about, to be honest, and fair enough, you know? So, if, yeah. If you don't have perfect pitch, it doesn't really matter to you very much. Hmm. 
if you don't have perfect pitch, you might get, not get the right notes. And if you do have perfect pitch, yes, you will get the right notes, but you could be really annoyed if it's not the, if it's not the version oh, of the song you want. You'll be driven crazy by certain things because they won't be in the key that you are expecting. I mean, uh, Wayne Marshall, I work with Wayne yeah. constantly. He has perfect pitch. Um, and he is driven crazy by things that are not quite, well, even, even things like if an orchestra is tuning to not A440, but A444, or, you know, certain places they tune slightly differently, slightly higher, slightly lower, and that drives him insane. You know, that would really drive a person insane. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it, it's, it's a curse and a blessing, per perfect pitch. Hmm. I don't have it, so <laughs> I'm not worried about it too much. <laughs> so um, the proms are a British phenomenon. Is there anything different about performing at the proms compared with other live performances that you may do? Well, I mean, it certainly is. You feel like it's pretty top of the tree. Um, compared to the other things, but honestly, you know, standing up in the Symphony Hall in Birmingham with the CBSO or with the, even with the BCMG, which is the smaller group, um, you know, doing Wonderful Town with Simon Rattle conducting there felt pretty much just as fancy <laughs> as it did at the proms. Uh, the proms, the atmosphere of the proms is part of the fun. The fact that, that you know, the, the whole bullpen area is just people crammed in like lemmings if you're popular. and. And they are just, you know, hooting and hollering and carrying on and encouraging you and egging you on. Um, it's, it's so refreshing to see people react to classical music that way, uh, in, a, in a more rowdy way than, than we, I grew up in America where, you know, classical music is this very fancy thing that's off on the side. Most people don't know that much about it. It's not as popular, uh, whereas here, it's, you know, it could be the same people that go to a football match could be going to that prom because people, it, it, kids here are raised with the proms and with all that being on their telly and sometimes going in person. So they have an awareness of classical music that I'm afraid American kids don't tend to have. It's a more elite thing in America and I don't think that's a plus. I think mm. the proms are a great force it's, for... It's more democratized, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And also they're, you know, they've... They, they can be a little stuffy in terms of what they think is appropriate for the proms, but they've relaxed a lot in the last decade or two, um, you know, having film proms and Sondheim proms and, you know, the kinds of things that are really considered popular music, not classical music, but, but done in a way, done at a level that deserves to be there by people who, are, who are, have that level of expertise. Of course. Um, you have worked both live on stage and 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 have performed on TV, uh, and you've also done recordings. Do you uh, do you like uh, recording more than live, or live more than recording? I like them both for different reasons. But the thing that I felt like was fitting me like a glove was recording, because I the first time I went into a studio. After those years of you know doing those living strings records and hundred one strings records with my dad, um, the first time I walked into Abbey Road 
and was it was the Anything Goes recording for EMI with John McGlynn conducting because he was you know John Wilson is not my first <laughs> date for this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was in the John McGlynn gang before I was in the John Wilson gang by many years, several years, um, and he sort of forced EMI to hire me for Anything Goes to play Reno because um, uh, they really wanted somebody famous and I wasn't famous. But they, uh, they allowed it after a lot of tantrums from John. They allowed it and I went in to sing. The first thing I sang, as I recall, the London Symphony sitting there. We did those recordings in the old-fashioned way of everybody's in the room at the same time as opposed to somebody's in a booth and you put the vocal on later and most pop recording is done like that. And, and a lot of show albums are done to track, too. But um, anyway, doing it all in the room at the same time is quite an experience. With, with the digital edit editing capabilities they have, it's very possible to do it very well that way. Um, singing, the first thing I had to sing was I Get a Kick Out of You in that really surprising original arrangement, which is just like water. It's, there's no dotted rhythms. There's no, hey, I get no kick, none of that. It's literally, I get no kick from champagne. It's triplets against, it's three against four. It's three against four all the way through it, and that is the, the beauty of it. And it's very, very simple, and it's quiet. It's not a big, loud song. Um, I felt like, ah, I feel like I'm home. I felt at home in a recording studio. Doing that, I went, I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm doing what I was supposed to do. I felt like I was supposed to be doing that. Hmm. And I've always felt that way ever since in a recording studio. Mm. So, um, John McGlynn, I only heard about recently. Um, he did some really good recordings of various musicals like Showboat and uh, Girl Crazy. Yeah, I heard that really good arrangement of I Got Rhythm from Girl Crazy. Yeah how you've got which is which is somewhat different from the Salinger MGM oh it's very very different version. you know what they what they wrote that made Ethel Merman a star overnight literally um, was quite different from the film version with Judy Judy was already kind of a star I mean she was already happening and it wasn't meant to be you know, quite this, it wasn't meant to just be a focus on her and that laser voice. Um, Ethel had a laser voice. Judy had a velvet voice. You know, they didn't have even the same voice quality. So very different takes on that song. Um, one was a star making, you know, the original version was a, absolutely a star making version because, you know, Ethel went out there and honked that out and everybody heard every wor word of it and every note of it. and. She was a star overnight with that. It's, it's a powerfully good arrangement. And you have in that arrangement, um, in between the phrases, like you get the, you get the symbol, you get the psh, I got rhythm, psh, I got music, mm -hmm. and so on. It's as if it, it's, you know, driving her along. Well, remember, and this is the thing that I'm sure you know, but a lot of people don't. Um, the original arrangements were meant to be sung acoustically. That was sung acoustically. Nobody was mic'd. Yes. No one was mic'd. The orchestra was in a pit. Mm. They were jazz players, a lot of them. There were some, there were some quite famous people in that, in that early, in that girl crazy pit. Um, and it was, it's always orchestrated in such a way that there's never any percussion or any, uh, any brass playing under a vocal. 
but you'll get I got rhythm, I got music, I got music. You'll get the horns in the gaps, and then you'll get a chorus that's a dance chorus where everybody's going wild. But you you literally are you're going to hear things as color instruments, but not arguing with the vocal. That is the old style of orchestration, and it's that's what John McGlynn was preserving. Between working with John McGlynn and learning all of that, I also knew Jonathan Tunick very well. I did a couple of shows with him. We were very good friends, and um, I learned a lot about orchestration from him. Um, mm. you, you know Jonathan Tunick. You know who that is. Yeah, I. Uh, he's a Sondheim's orchestrator, oh, really? and many other people's, but Sondheim's main uh, orchestrator. Yeah, he, Jonathan Tunick um, is someone I've only found out about recently. Um, the the original arrangements. They, you said they have. Um, they, they don't have much percussion in them. That may have well, been. Well, they have percussion between the vocal lines. Well, yes, but um, not under it, a vocal it line. It drives them along. Um, at first, I thought it might have been the size of the piss or the porterage costs, but mm -hmm. but of course, yeah acoustics the percussion would be too loud and drown well, out yeah and that's the problem because in the, those players then knew how to play and not cover a vocal because yeah your drums are going to be going they're going to be going you know they're going to be underpinning it to keep the rhythm steady but they're not going to be bashing and i don't think the instrumentalists today have that, they don't come to that knowledge of how to play under a singer without swamping them, without having to go out of their way to find out, because that's not the modern style of playing. The modern style of playing is, oh, everybody is at 11 all the time, and so the sound guy has to fix it. And, you know, that is not how many of these things were intended to be. And these players, most of them being jazz players, they would probably, they would have certainly known a thing or two about improvisation. Oh, absolutely, and, and they and they did improvise, and I, you know, Benny, I think Benny Goodman was in that Girl Crazy Pit. Really? People, oh yeah, four or five very, look it up on Wikipedia, there oh, are four or five quite famous I, um, um, players. Yeah. I want to say the drummer was also, I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody very famous. I have, um, a short score of Erwin Costal's arrangement of If the Rain's Got to Fall from Half a Sixpence, the movie of Half a Sixpence, and there's no drum part in it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, maybe it's because it's a short score. And then when I showed it to Neil, uh, Neil Brand, he said, that's probably because the drummer knew how to improvise. Yeah, he just and knew what was appropriate and what wasn't. And he played when and he thought it was yeah. right and didn't play when, he, when it wasn't. And, yeah. He figured it out for himself and they didn't write it down. None of them knew that these were going to be historical documents. None of them. They just thought, ah, we're doing this today. We'll do something else tomorrow. You know, they didn't preserve these notes. So yeah. a lot of these scores, that's, that's why there is a John Wilson library, because... No one, you know, and John McGlynn did the same thing with theater music, was, was preserving things and reconstructing things that had been thrown out. Same with John Wilson and the, the Hollywood stuff. Um, they, they didn't know. Hmm. They, it's just like, you know, you go, did, you know, do, gee, do you think the apostles knew they were in the Bible when they were running around with Jesus? No. <laughs> they didn't know they were in the Bible yet. They just were people. <laughs> yeah, they were, it's it's like that. Everybody was just like, yeah, we're just doing our gig. They're giving me some money. I'm gonna go, you know, record this thing. They didn't they didn't think to save it. Hmm. The although I think it was James Aubrey 
was his name who was the head of MGM um, in the late 60s? I don't know. This it was James, I think it was, it was James somebody. Uh, um, he, who was responsible for the throwing away of all the manuscripts, he, though, in response to the criticisms he received, I think Andre Previn was a big critic of, mm -hmm. of, of what he did um, when it came to the music library. And I imagine that was because a lot of his stuff probably got thrown away. And mm -hmm. um, I, he, he, the, boss, the boss of MGM said, I'm sorry, but we can't let we can't let sentimentality get in the way of dollars. I think that was what he said. Yeah, well, boy, hasn't America taken that to heart? <laughs> 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 the almighty dollar is still alive and well and well, ruling the the country. It's not just with MGM. I've just I've received, a few days ago, I heard the news that a lost Jerry Goldsmith score had been unearthed from a, it was a, t, it was a score that Jerry wrote for a TV movie in the early 70s called The Man that starred mm -hmm. James Earl Jones. And it was the fictional story of the first black US president. Mm -hmm. Now the score has been, there is a new recording coming out next month of the score, but that score has been transcribed by ear. Mm -hmm. Lee Phillips, who's kind of like John Wilson, but with Jerry Goldsmith's music, mm -hmm. has transcribed the whole score by ear from the film's soundtrack because there were no surviving tapes. Mm -hmm. And they've done a really... I've heard some snippets of the new recording, and, they've, and I think they've done a very good job, but now... I think Universal Studios had it in their archive all along. Right. After um, all that, they could after have just pulled it palaver. off of a dusty shelf. I'm sure it's a dusty shelf and they haven't had a lot of call for it. Well, but, no. but also, once you bring these things back to life, you have to continue to keep them in the public, yeah. you know, available to the public to use, to yeah. hear, to listen to. And, but Universal, um, did you hear the story? Uh, in 2009, I think it was, about Decca Records. Their archive was at Universal Studios. It still is, but they had a fire in their oh, archive. I, did, I vaguely remember this now. And they lost a lot of original tapes and arrangements for stars mm -hmm. like Ella Fitzgerald and Nat mm -hmm. King Cole and Sinatra. And... I recently, I've, I recently did try to. I, I recently did some research to try and find out where the Gordon Jenkins arrangements are that he did for Danny Kaye. Mm. Uh, he did them for Danny Kaye's Hans Christian Andersen album, mm. and that was done for Decca. And I have a vague feeling. I have a really, you know, that it's gone. Well, nothing is really gone as long as there are people who have the ears that can reconstruct it. You know, as long as the John Wilsons of the world are around, nothing is really gone unless the audio is gone entirely, too. So, you know, don't despair. <laughs> there are worse things to worry about today. <laughs> you know, most things can be gotten back in, in one way or another. You have worked 
with many famous people in the industry, mm -hmm. of course you've worked with John Wilson, mm -hmm. um, and with John Wilson you've worked with the great Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy fame. Yes, I have. Yes. Um, and as uh, is there is there any particular person that you like working with? Oh well, I mean, I have liked working with all of the people who are not, you know, full of their own. If if they're not. <laughs> the type that need to be hoisted on their own petard. Um, sometimes, sometimes people who are quite famous have a lot of attitude and entourage and stuff like that. But not. I've been pretty lucky with that. I I've worked with. I mean, there's some extraordinary people that I've worked with, uh, either that are known or you know done something with. Like you know, people say, "Who's the most? Who's the fa most famous person that you've spent time with?" Well, I spent six months working with Sting. He's so much fun. He's a great guy. We did Three Penny Opera on Broadway, and he—he he is not—he's not full of any nonsense. He's just—he's just, he's just a, a, a good guy, a, a terrific talent, and he's funny. And that's the thing people don't know about him. He's funny. He's very funny. And he's very clever and he's very funny. And he was a joy to work with. Um, but like, you know, doing, I, I was original Grizabella in Cats in L.A., so I was there for nearly two years singing that song. And it was a great gig for me. I was not famous at that point. I, and I'm not famous now, but I definitely wasn't then. I was in my mid-twenties and, um, and on the young side for doing it, but they chose me to do it. And good grief, every night after the show, somebody would knock on my door and it would be a film star. Because in New York, you're used to that. But it's not going to be film stars. It's going to be Broadway people. You know, it's just not the same people. But every night I'd open my door and there'd be some film star there. Um, it was it was quite astonishing. I remember being on a red carpet. I did. I was asked to do the very first AIDS benefit before with um, it was even before Rock Hudson died with Elizabeth Taylor. It was the beginning of her her um, her charity work on that front, and it was because she was she had friends who were who were dealing with this disease, and it was. It was such a quagmire of horribleness. Um, so she started that whole AIDS benefit MFAR thing, and uh, partly because of her friend Rock Hudson. But I was in it. I went to sing uh, Memory, and it was a who's who of famous people. You know, from Shirley MacLaine to Rod Stewart to Cindy Lauper to Sam Harris to, I mean, it was. I can't even remember all the people that were in it, but it, it was it was astonishing the number of people that all got up and did a number. And so I kind of you know I did a couple of those for Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, I you know did some press conferences with her, and she's a hoot. She was a hoot. I remember asking her saying uh, asking her if she knew uh, if she had ever been close with with Olivia De Havilland. Because Olivia de Havilland, I had met because we had the same agent and we'd had been to dinner together, and what you know, she is as lovely as you'd think she is. She's she she was the loveliest of people, um, but I, you know, Elizabeth said no. I didn't really know her. We weren't quite the same generation. She didn't you know she wasn't vulgar enough to say um, she's a lot older than me, <laughs> but she, but she was. Uh, she said no. Um, that's the time when she was, you know, when she was really doing her best stuff was still when my leading men were still horses and dogs. <laughs> so she was a teenage girl. And the, just hanging out with her a little bit was so much fun. Because she's abroad. She was abroad. 
she wasn't she wasn't a lady she didn't have any airs and graces she she was fun and that's that's what I can say about most of the famous people that I have worked with um, Simon Rattle is fun he's also incredibly famous but he's fun um, he's fun and he's good at his job I mean people that are fun and good at their job are the ones that that I have overwhelmingly been lucky enough to work with didn't I hear I think I heard a story about Simon Rattle playing percussion in the John Wilson Orchestra. Oh yeah, no, John. John did a concert in Berlin in the concert house, in the big concert house, and I, I think Simon came in and and went and landed on the drum kit there and did some stuff in the concert. I think an encore. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Um, the last time I had, I didn't do that concert, but I had, I had been there, like two or three years, I can't remember how many years previously, doing Wonderful Town with Simon with the Berlin Phil. So I knew the hall very well and uh, I knew the territory very well. Um, it was, yeah, it's, it's, been it's been extraordinary. I, I feel very lucky to have worked with all the people that I have. Um, you know, the Broadway people are just normal people, but you don't expect film people to be that normal, and they are. They are. They can be. And not all of them are. Seth is just, it's, Seth is fun. He's, he's a fun guy. He's funny. You know, he brought his dad on the tour with us. I mean, see, nobody thinks that about Seth, but he brought his dad along. His dad was great fun. His dad was great fun. And, and you know, Seth, no, no side to him. Just, you know, just good fun. Good fun, funny. And, uh, you know, just, you know, mucking in with everybody else. One of the things, though, I love about Seth, what he does on Family Guy. I recently found out, you know, the Shapoopy, Shapoopy mm -hmm. song from The Music Man. Yeah. I didn't know it was from The Music Man. I thought that was an original song for Family Guy. Oh, no. <laughs> and I saw they, on YouTube, some guy had put the two versions together. He put the Buddy Hackett version mm -hmm. with the Seth MacFarlane version and how almost identical the scenes were when it came to the choreography, mm -hmm. the arrangement, mm -hmm. the way it was sung, and okay, the only difference was in the Seth MacFarlane one, they were all, you know, doing a soccer game. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, I mean, he comes from, I mean, I, I talked to him a bit on, on that tour about, you know, how'd you end up doing what you're doing? And he was right at that college age when he had to choose between the fact that he'd been offered this cartoon thing to do in Hollywood or go to, go to college and study musical theater, because that's what he was going to do. He was accepted into, oh. I want to say it was Northwestern, but don't quote me on that. I'm not sure if I'm right. But um, he, was, he, was getting, he, was, he was going to study musical theater. That's the career path he had chosen. And then the cartoon series thing came up, and he went and pursued that. So he went away from the other. But... He, he grew up as a musical theater person like so many Americans do. Because over here, I don't know if they, if, if when you're coming through school, whether you're doing a musical every year, but you are in America. You know, musical theater is an American art form. There's, you know, there are British versions of it yes. from before, but it really is an American art form. And there are British variations on it. So if you guys in, in you know, when you're 15 years old are doing HMS Pinafore, we're doing the Music Man. We're doing an American musical. 
Uh, and so he would have done all that. That's why American opera singers are pretty good at crossing over to musical theater material because they grew up singing it. I recently saw videos of Renee Fleming singing jazz. Yeah, she can do I, it. Because I heard that she had a jazz background and I thought, are there any videos of her singing jazz? And I, and I, there yeah. was a, oh God, it was, she did, um, I've forgotten what it was now. It was. I don't know what it was, but it I was... I think a, I have that album. It's, um, she did um, yeah. some jazz songs for The Shape of Water. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. I think, yeah, I vaguely remember that now, yes. Now, she's, you know, she Americans, it's, it's not... You know, when you're five years old and you're an American and you sing, you're going to be singing... Some of it's going to be show tunes. Some of it's going to, you know, some of it's going to be pop stuff and show tunes. And you didn't, you know, you're not born singing Traviata. Mm. You're not. You have to... You have to grow into that. Hmm. So uh, while while people it, like myself, most people who really sing for a living, uh, it was it was apparent at a pretty early age that they could really sing, hmm. and so that was developed. However, it was in each individual case. But but in America, there there are a lot of show tunes in the mix. When it, how I got into musical theatre, I I think there are few ways I got into music. I think the main reason why I got into musical theatre was because when I was little and I, when me and, the, me and my parents went on long car journeys, one of the CDs we'd listened to, and I think we still listen to it now and again, um, was uh, an, album of, an album of Monty Python. Mm-hmm. And the songs were very funny. I didn't actually get what the lines... Yeah, I'm sure you didn't get a lot of it. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite carefully constructed that, so that the people that shouldn't get but it I, don't. I learned, I learned Life of Brian. Yeah. I learned, I learned Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And um, there was a song on that album, very, very rude song, called Every Sperm is Sacred. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course I remember it. And I thought, what does... I thought, what does that sound like? And it took time. Again, it wasn't until several, only like three years ago at the most that I made the connection between that, that musical number and Consider Yourself from Oliver. And because I watched Oliver. All right, okay. Because the way, the camera angles, the type of lighting, the mm -hmm. dance moves and, of course, the music. Now, see, I haven't, I haven't linked that up in my head because I haven't studied it. But well done, you finding that link. I wouldn't have found it. <laughs> I believe you, though. And, and but then, of course, um, uh, this was when I was actually. I didn't go and see this because I was very little at the time. But um, in around two thousand and five, six, my grandma was around babysitting me. And the reason why was because my mum and dad uh, went to London uh, to see uh, Spamalot, which mm -hmm. had, I think had just opened mm -hmm. on the West End, having been on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad uh, came home with a T-shirt which had one of the songs on it, I'm mm -hmm. Not Dead Yet. And, he would, mm -hmm. and all the time I'd hear him sing, Oh, I'm not dead yet, da 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 yeah. like that. Yeah. 
and he said, you need to hear Spamalot, you need to hear Spamalot. Yeah. So you, you were influenced by your parents, and we, absolutely. And we listened to the cast album, mm -hmm. and eventually I went and saw Spamalot. I've seen Spamalot twice, mm -hmm. actually, now. I first mm -hmm. saw it in Manchester with Marcus Brigstock, and then, I don't know who, who was playing the lead on this occasion, but it came to my hometown, Chester, mm -hmm. and we watched it again then. And the thing about Spamalot is that um, it's a musical that's always modified a little bit to tie in, because there's satirical bits in it. Mm -hmm. um, you have lines of the song to include things about, uh, I don't know, Trump. Mm -hmm. Or um, mm -hmm. whoever the whoever is famous, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah whoever is of the moment to be skewered. Well, I mean, Britain has a fine old tradition of that. I mean, look at the the Lord High Executioner song. Um, in uh, oh, which one is it? Is it uh, uh, what's the one with Caddishaw? Um, the Gilbert and Sullivan. Anyway, uh, the Lord, I, I, I've, I've got, I've got a little, I've got a little list, you know, and it's always I've got a little list. It's always be written with topical people. Um, yeah, they, n nobody's singing the names of the original I version saw, anymore. I don't think. Yeah, I, 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 I saw, I saw the. Um, I first again, like with Python and musical theatre in general, I saw the Family Guy parody of that song, mm -hmm. which Seth MacFarlane brilliantly performed as Stewie mm -hmm. and had and he had um, I think it was like Joel McNeely he had his composer jazz it up yeah and um, uh, he um, and um, he said like oh god the um, guy who comes to school in camouflage who I don't know stinks the whole place out and uh, and while we're on the subject, HBO deserves a whack for ending The Sopranos with a f cut to black. <laughs> well, yes, obviously Seth has an issue with that, <laughs> so he, he and, decided to and then, throw it and in I his thought, show. And when I heard it, I thought, when I when he went, he's got him on the list. He's got him on the list. And may none of them be missed. May none of them yeah. be missed. I yeah. thought, that's Gilbert and Sullivan. I looked it up and I was yeah, right. Of course it is. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, there's a fine old tradition of doing that, of adapting certain songs to what's going on right now. And, uh, you know, long may it wave. I, I, don't think, I don't think we'll ever stop doing that. Although Tom Lehrer begs to differ. Oh, really? <laughs> Does he? He um, once said... In the seven, when he stopped performing in the seventies, he actually he said the reason why he stopped, he said that I'm paraphrasing. He said the reason why I stopped performing is because political satire has now become obsolete because Henry Kissinger has now been given the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. Yeah, he obviously had a problem with that. <laughs> so now um, moving on. Mm. Um, do you have any future projects in the pipeline? if you're willing to disclose them? Well, um, A, you never know, and two years of COVID kind of sitting on me bum like everybody else was not that much fun. So yes, I hope so. Um, I've got some stuff, I can't really talk in detail about the things that John Wilson and I are talking about, but we've got some things that we're planning. Um, there's another conductor who's a, a specialist in Kurt Weill, who, uh, in, and we're, we're trying to put together a program of uh, the vile American shows, not the German, because nobody's doing that. And the American shows are kind of fabulous.
Because when, you know, that was half of Kurt Weill's career. The first half, yeah, he's in Germany. And he's writing with Brecht. And there's a certain tone to all of that. Um, they're quite famous. And they're, they're, a specific, they're a very specific taste. Um, when he got to America, he, because obviously he was a Jew, he needed to get out. He got out. Um, he started writing with a, a cross-section of composers. He wrote with Maxwell Anderson. He wrote with Ogden Nash, or not composers, lyricists. Uh, he wrote with Ogden Nash. He wrote with Ira Gershwin. Different shows. And boy, do they not, you know, he doesn't sound like the same guy. When he's with a different composer, he, or a different lyricist, he sounds like a different guy. So there's a lot of, there's a wealth of material from those shows. There's six or seven shows that he did. Uh, anyway, we're going to be mining that. We're going to come up with a couple of programs where, whether, you know, an orchestral one and a piano voice one and see, see where it takes us. Hmm. Because I really like the American stuff. I, and I, as an American, I don't see any point in me pretending to be a German specialist, because I'm not. I prefer the American songs. They're, they're much more me. So um, there's, you know, Lady in the Dark is one of them. Um, Love Life was a not terribly well-known one, but boy, what a great score. Um, Knickerbocker Holiday has the song September Song. That's the famous thing. Lost in the Stars. Um, One Touch of Venus, you know, these, some of them were made into films. He, he had an extraordinary, extraordinary career. And so we're, we're mining some of that. That's one thing. Um, the stuff with John, I mean, I think there's a recording project that, that we may be doing some things together. Can't really talk about, I'm sworn to secrecy, I'm not allowed to talk about that one. Um, but that's, that's pretty imminent. That, there should be stuff happening this year with that. Um, there is a there's a man in New York writing a writing a, a drama, a, sort of a play with music, about the life of Ethel Merman, and he wants me to be Merman. Oh. And uh, so it, it's 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 not a straight biography. It's it's got a quirky approach to it. It's it's much more akin to if you recall the the Judy the Judy Garland. Um, Thing that was done, the theater piece that then became the film that Renee Zellweger did, which was essentially about one little section of her life later in life and the what went on. Uh, it's it's somewhat fictionalized, but it it's a it's a picture of what she was like at that point. This is a, a Merman one that is that is gives you a certain point of view on her, but it covers a lot more of her career. It doesn't cover a couple of weeks; it covers decades. So that would be kind of a nice thing to do. Um, he, he's decided I'm, I'm the right person for it, and I think probably I am. So let's see where it goes. I mean, we're, you know, it's, it's, at, a, it's at the being workshopped stage, so we'll see. It, you know, these things you never can get your hopes up too high because too many of them don't ever go anywhere. But, but I've, I've got high hopes for it at the moment. It sounds like a good idea to me, so we'll see. Well, some of these singers, Ethel Merman being one of them, and there are a couple of others like... Well, I think Judy Garland was another. There was Marlena Dietrich. And then there was uh, Patricia Routledge. Mm -hmm. um, they became, later on, they started to just do acting. Um, Ethel Merman, the first thing I saw Ethel Merman in was a movie called It's a Mad, 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 <laughs> Mad World. Um, well, that wasn't exactly acting. That was just Ethel being Ethel. Yeah. <laughs> Doing, doing a very funny cameo. Yeah. <laughs> Whacking 
like yeah. Jonathan Winters or Sid yeah. Caesar over the head with a yeah, handbag. Funny. She, uh, you know, she, she, I think on a certain level she took herself quite seriously, but on another level she was willing to take the piss out of herself. So, or else she wouldn't have done and that movie. The, and of course, though she did sing in this, she had a cameo in uh, Airplane. Yeah. Um, playing yeah, yeah, the woman Lieut that thinks Lieutenant, Lieutenant like, Hurwitz who yeah, sings he, he he's thinks Ethel Merman and there she is <laughs> singing uh, You'll Be Swell You'll yeah, Be Right coming at roses, yeah. yeah so I mean that's a, that's a kind of an interesting thing to think of to, to, to do because the thing about Ethel we know her shows we know her we know her songs we know what she sounded like and honestly, I can sound like her when, I mean, I've, that's been a great part of my recording career has been doing her shows, doing, doing roles that she was famous for. Um, nobody knows much about her life. Her life was, you know, in a way, Judy Garland's life we knew more about. But with Ethel's life, you know who Ethel was on stage, but, but there's a lot to be told about what went on in Ethel's life because it even surprised me, and I'm kind of a specialist in Ethel. Um, I, I, reading the script even surprised me, and it. Uh, what I hope it does is t is show you, because she was, you know, by the time she was old, you know, you know, in the last decade of her life, she was. People feared her. She was, you know, she was tough. She was tough. She was like an armored tank, which is why she was a great Mama Rose. You know, Mama Rose was indomitable, but um, she. She, um, something put that armor on her. And I think this, I would like to think that this show will show the armor going on. Which thing caused what? Why was she in so, so why'd she have such a need to defend herself? Hmm. And, and, and be tough and, and repel all attacks. Hmm. You know, she, she went through some stuff. And when it comes to performing songs from films. Um, is there any advice that you are willing to give to young performers out there? Um, sure. Learn the style. You know, for, them, for somebody to stand up and sing a classic song in the classic arrangement, if, if they've got that orchestra playing that arrangement behind them, I think they have a responsibility to go and look and listen intently in, in, a, in a very detailed way to the original, not just go, oh, I don't need to hear them. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my own take on it. If you're going to do your own take on it, then do a different arrangement. But if you're going to do their arrangement, then go back and see why it's the way it is. Go back and examine it. That's why I approach those kind of tribute things very differently than I approach, and this is just Kim, and I'm just singing my interpretation of something. Um, two different things going on. Uh, with, with the John Wilson stuff, I, I copy phrasing, I copy diction, I copy, I copy pitch. I mean, Julie Andrews, as, as flawless as she is, and she is a goddess, there's no doubt, she occasionally, she has a habit of, you know, she'll hit the last note of the song slightly under the pitch, and then she'll vibrato up to it. Like, if you listen to the end of, I have confidence in me. <laughs> so whenever I do that number, I do take the piss a little bit out of that. She doesn't. She's a, you know she's an extraordinary musician. So she it, it's not much, but, but it's just a little vocal mannerism. But she also, has. with when these things were recorded, they, when these things were recorded, they could have been like happy accidents. In the case of the trolley song, there was yeah, there's a there's right. a botched lyric in there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 
buzz, buzz, buzz went the motor yeah, instead yeah, of plop, yeah. plop, plop. And I don't know. I think it was something. It was something to do with the yeah. balance between the orchestra and yeah, the, and they liked that the take, and so they kept the one with yeah. the with the lyric kerfuffle. Yeah, she she. I don't think she did the buzz, buzz, buzz went the buzz. I can't remember what it was, but we we decided, or I decided, I didn't even discuss it with John. I decided I'd sing the right words, even though they don't exactly match the film version. I think when she put out a recording of it, I think the lyric was fixed. Hmm. So um, you know, yeah, we get mistakes on recordings all the time, and particularly if it's live. You know that thing that you saw that last summer, the uh, Grand Night for Singing. Yes. Um, yeah, the recording is full of mistakes, but it was a live recording. You know, it was a live recording, and it's you know I'm I'm not at all happy with the balances and the levels, but at least there is a record of what we did. Mm. At least you know at least we can listen to it, and some of it sounds very good. I just think the five-part harmony stuff is just you know it's it's not at all in balance. The five voices are not at all in balance with each other. And I, that disappoints me. I wish I'd been able to be at the sessions. Hmm. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's on the fly. It's an outdoor venue. It's, you know, the wind was yeah, <laughs> rushing was whipping through. up a tornado. And I mean, many, many obstacles to, to doing something that sounds manicured and sanitized. And in a way, I don't mind that because I'm getting tired of very manicured sounding things. Ever since they invented that thing, and I want to say it was invented in the late 80s, somewhere in the 80s, which, you know, the, the pitch correcting thing, hmm. which, I, you know, I have it on very good authority that that was invented uh, by people who I did a pop album where they said, oh, it was invented for Madonna to fix her pitch. Hmm. And that has a certain sound to it that yeah. just makes it all homogenized. But also, it takes away the need to sing on pitch. <laughs> well, yeah. But then, you know, if you listen to... You know, the, I'm sure you watched the TV show Glee, did you? I don't. Oh, well, you should have. You should. You, yeah. Anyway, you should go back and watch it. It is quite, it's quite fun. It's quite interesting. It's, uh, it's an interesting take on everything. Um, but the music is, they're, they're using the auto-tune so much. Yeah. That it just becomes, it just, people sound like they're just singing in a tin can. It, it has a certain sound to it well, that that you can kind of pick is, out. Well, I had a whenever I watched uh, films or programs of a certain period. Okay, it wasn't auto tune, and they weren't musicals, but there was a thing about the sound that they made. They had that tin can mm -hmm. like sound, and on a couple of occasions when I was editing stuff, I tried. Doing, giving it a sort of reverb by um, leveling two, one, two of the same sound on top of each other and putting one a little bit ahead, one a little bit behind, a little bit behind, and and making it a completely different sound. And um, the way music has has been recorded has changed radically over the years. Mary Poppins. That um, Owen Costell's arrangements for that are top notch. But what Owen Costell also did, he also did various techniques with tape. Mm -hmm. he, Owen Costell to the Shermans was basically what George Martin was to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, he was their George Martin. In the case of the Penguin Dance, he 
Dick Sherman was playing the kazoo and they recorded it slower and then speeded it up um, to get the pitch right and the, and the speed right for when the penguins come out and do their dance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, ever since they had the technology of recording, they have been playing with the technology of recording. And so it's quite interesting how complicated it's become now. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> when it started, like my dad with his sound on sound Sony tape deck, <laughs> two tracks, that was big news. <laughs> big news in the 60s, 70s or 60s, whenever he bought that. So, Kim, this was such an interesting conversation. Thank you very much for sharing with me and with those who are going to be listening your thoughts for this podcast. Thank you and good luck with whatever you're doing in the future. And uh, to all of you listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to the Film Score Junkie podcast and do tune in again next time. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Charlie.